Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you not only make our needs obvious to us, but also help us to see all that you have for us here. Lift our spirits, give us hearts that rejoice in your truth. Help us to remember all of the good that you have for your people today and help us to see it on display in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. We have been in the midst of a section in Jesus' teaching that sometimes is called the missions discourse. Uh, Over the last few weeks, he has spoken very frankly to us about what we as Christians should expect when we go out into the world, right? He's he's telling us the world is a, a hostile place. He's preparing us to get the kind of reception that he got, right? I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Your own family will turn against you. Expect rejection, even by those closest. And if they do reject you, he tells us, do not bend, don't turn your back on me. He's getting us ready for opposition. And this week, Jesus moves forward. And as he moves forward, he says, look, they won't all reject you. Some actually will receive you. Uh, Jesus speaks of the one who receives a prophet, right? Jesus says this in verse 41. The one who receives a prophet, will re- because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. What does he mean? Well, let's go back a step to verse 40. Jesus says to his disciples, whoever receives you, receives me. As a Christian, do you think of your own life this way? Are you... Are you going out into the world, as you're going out into the world, do you really consider that you aren't just another person out there walking around, but that Jesus sees you as his representative? Uh, That is how Jesus talks about you here today. That's how he talks about us, and it's how he wants us to think about ourselves. If an outsider of the gospel shows kindness and shows hospitality to us, or perhaps somebody who is a believer shows hospitality to us, they are perhaps unknowingly showing kindness and hospitality to Jesus himself, right? He's, he's telling us that. Why? Because we are his sent ones. We are his people. We carry his word. We're sent on his mission. We follow with his commands. We're his representatives. And so, of course, whoever receives you because you are really a believer really receives Jesus. We need to be taught by God who we are. This is an incredible burden that the modern world has placed upon individuals. The modern world has this idea that you have to create your own identity. That you, uh, American person, 
bear the responsibility of forming your own identity and deciding who you are. Decide who you are. Decide what you are. Decide what you mean. Decide what you will be. What an incredible burden the world places upon us. Form yourself. Make yourself. Decide who you are. And yet God doesn't do that. Instead, God comes to us and he tells us who we are. We're, we're given identities by God himself. We're his disciples. Disciples are sent out into the world. They're given meaning and they're given a mission by God. It comes from above, not from below, not from us. At one point, uh, Jesus told them, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. To be sent by Jesus isn't like when a parent says to their kid, well, you're 18. It's time to move out. Uh, Go on, make your own life distinct from me. Form your own thing. Do your own thing. That's not what Jesus is is doing here. Um, When the way Jesus looks at our going, it is not like we go out into the world, live our own life, do our own thing, but we do it with some Jesus sprinkled on. Jesus, Jesus' intention is that you go for him and you bear witness to him wherever you are. You go on a mission, right? I'm not saying that it makes us missionaries, but he's sending us out to be his representatives wherever we go. And so as we go out, what are we doing? We're meant to live as someone who has Jesus central to our life and whose life is built around these things that God has given to us and told us about. In other words, your life is meant to be all about Jesus. In the text of Matthew, we've been going through this long stretch of Jesus Preparing us for struggles, preparing us for challenges uh, that we're supposed to meet when we go out into the world. And at the same time, what is happening here in our passage is, is, is almost a, a rebalancing of what he's been saying. Because he wants you to know that all is not negative here. You know, previously, Jesus was warning us how to think about persecution, how to prepare, or, or in some cases, how not to prepare, actually, for opposition and trouble. But it's not as though Jesus envisions the life of a Christian being a, an unceasing gauntlet of hatred and misery. He doesn't. Because even in this passage, what is he saying? There will be spots of beauty and joy. In fact, there will be lots of beauty and joy and lots of moments of grace and cups of water and exactly what we need at the moment that we need it. And in fact, all of in today's passage, what does Jesus do? Jesus turns to the reality that the disciples will at times even be received by people. They'll even be welcomed by people. This was the reality of Jesus' ministry, right? Yes, we remember that Jesus was despised. He was rejected. He was bruised. He was battered. He was hated even by his own people. And yet, what have we also seen in Matthew? Crowds clamoring to be near him. People calling out to him and receiving his ministry, people believing in his name. We know that Jesus has a huge following. And so when you think of Jesus, you you think of someone who's despised and beloved. He's despised and beloved, not simply one or the other. Um, His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. What What do his enemies do? They hear his voice and they lash out. That's the way it is with Jesus. And Jesus has set us up for the struggle because if we go out into the world expecting only, well, I have a great savior. Everyone's going to be excited to hear about Jesus. We're going to be in for a rude awakening. And and so at the same time, Jesus does something else, doesn't he? 
He's also telling us that, yes, you need to have that dose of realism. You need to be hit with that dose of realism. But then here he's also telling us not to be Debbie Downer. He's telling us not to be Eeyore, right? It's always going to be raining on me. It's always going to be terrible. No one will respond to the gospel. I better not tell that guy. He's just going to say no. Everyone will treat us badly. In fact, Jesus says, just like people have received me and received my message, you should know that people will receive you. You should know that people will believe my message. And you should know that people will share it with other people as well. This word is going to go forth. There is mercy for all of us. See, for the Christian, as hard as life can be, we, we never have an excuse for pessimism. We never have an excuse for for hopelessness. And that's really the balance that Jesus is bringing in here today as he ends this, this missions passage, right? So let's go into the passage. Let's look at it. Let's look what Jesus has to say and especially the encouragement that he has. We'll do it under three points. The first is that God provides. The second is that God sees. And then the third is God remembers. God provides. God sees. God remembers. So first, this morning, Jesus is teaching that God provides. Uh, He may have said hard things the last few weeks, and he may be setting them up to be prepared to face persecution. In fact, it's not that he may be. He is setting them up for that. But in spite of all of that, he does not want them to think that this means doom and gloom. Think of how he avoids doom and gloom. He doesn't minimize the trouble But he also doesn't correct it by elevating his disciples. He doesn't lift the disciples up. Um, He never never looks at the disciples and goes, you know, I've spent some time with you guys. And you you really have a lot of potential. Um, You really are very smart. Uh, I know some of you may not not be quite the the public speaker yet. But but I see potential in you guys, right? He he doesn't say, look, I talked to you all. Uh, You can really handle yourselves in a debate. I've seen you fight with each other. You're going to be great debaters, right? He doesn't, that's not what he does. He doesn't give them these shallow assurances that are sort of rooted in their personalities. Uh, he doesn't give them these like fleeting, shallow encouragements where, they, where he says, look at yourself and look what you're really like. You're going you're gonna to do really, really well. Instead, he gives them these assurances that are rooted in him. Right? He keeps driving them back to himself and saying, don't forget that I'm a great savior for you. The spirit's going to help you. Uh, I'm going to be with you. He's always talking about himself when he's talking about the encouragements that they need. Um, in scripture, God points to himself when he wants his people to be protected from despair. He points to himself. Um, and this is a very real need because Christians... Christians can tend towards despair. We need to be protected from it. It's like Jesus, it's like Jesus is constantly building in these corrections against it because he knows what we can be like, especially in our fallen state. We can be weak. We can be fearful. And sometimes it can be easy for us to slip into a, a weird place where for some reason we feel sorry for ourselves when we have so much. And what does God do then in a passage like this? He points to himself. He follows the same pattern that he's followed before. He points to himself and he says, I've got you. Put away the doom and the gloom. There will be people 
who will receive you on the way. There will be cups of water along the way. There will be tastes of mercy at times when you don't expect them. People will receive you. And whoever receives you, receives me. This is, this is about me, Christian, not about you. But he's crediting himself with these things, right? He's putting himself in the shoes of our suffering. And he's saying that when we have mercy along the way, that comes from him too. He gets the glory for that too. And it's for him, right? They're really doing these things for Jesus when they do them for you, Jesus says. And they're ultimately persecuting him when they persecute you. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm still in the world. I haven't left. He's holding himself out. As the encouragement, and he says, it's, it's not about you. It's, what, it's about what I will do through you, and it's about what I will do for you. When, when Paul is anticipating pessimism from his readers about the future of Israel, look what he says in Romans 11. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah... How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek out my, seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. What does Paul do when he is anticipating pessimism from his readers? He goes back to this old story of a despairing saint and the moment when God gave him just what he needed. And the thing that God gave him was not, cheer up Elijah, things are going to get better, you're a really good prophet. Instead, he points to himself and his work and says, I've reserved these people for myself. I'm in control. Don't be worried. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. And Paul is anticipating that the Romans need the same encouragement Elijah needed. And I guarantee you, we need that same encouragement too. Because if we look at the world and we see darkness, he's reminding us that he is at work even when it seems like things are declining. And this has always been God's way of operating with his people. There may be hardship, but there is mercy along the way at just the right moments. You know, God gave that mercy to Elijah when he needed it. And he gave that encouragement to Paul when he needed it. And, and you and I have no room to feel sorry for ourselves. We just don't. Because the mercy will come in God's own good time. And just when we need it, according to his wisdom, which we can trust. God provides. God provides. We can trust him. It's the first thing we need to see this morning. Second, he's teaching us that God sees. He sees everything that happens, whether it is the suffering of his people or whether it is the mercy that folks show to us. Let me say a bit about both of those things. The first thing I mentioned is that God sees the suffering of his people. Um, We need to know this and we need to remember this, especially in the moment when we are most tempted to forget it. And I don't know what that's going to be for you. I don't know if you've experienced that already. I don't know if you're in the middle of it right now or if you will be later. I guarantee you, you will be later. Unless today's the last day of your life. Um, Our God is not distant. He is not ignorant. And, And these things are not hidden from him. One of the places you see this so clearly is, is in Psalm 56. And, 
And David says something to the Lord. He's remembering the care that God has for him. And he says this in Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossing. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Does this sound like an impersonal deity who chooses to ignore you and your life and your hurts? No. Your sufferings are intimately known by God. Um, You remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus and God struck Saul down. You know, Saul has been persecuting Christians. He's been throwing them out of the synagogues. He's been persecuting them. But what does God say when he looks to Saul? He doesn't say, Saul, why have you been persecuting my people? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? In the eyes of God, if you persecute his people, it's him you're persecuting. He's united to his people. And so the experiences that we have become his. This is a word that we really need when we go through the very things that Jesus has been warning us about. When persecution comes our way, it is not unknown to our God. He keeps count of every one of them. They are in his book. He keeps them in a bottle. But I also mentioned that God sees those who show mercy to Jesus' people. Not only does God see the suffering of his people... But he also sees those who show mercy to his people. Um, Later on in Matthew, in Matthew 25, uh, Jesus says that those who minister to his people, to the suffering, to those who relate to Jesus by way of carrying their crosses, to those in prison. He says that, yes, he says he remembers that. And not only that, but that when they showed that mercy, they were really showing mercy to him in those instances. Do you see the pattern here? When we are persecuted, he is persecuted. When we are shown mercy, they're showing mercy to Jesus. Do you see that that he's got a representative in this world and it's you if you're a Christian? I remember as a kid, my dad did something. We were living in a little town in Sylvia, Kansas at the time. I'm not confident you would find anything if you Googled that town. Um, And there was, I think it was a town of maybe 200 people. And I remember that there was this man that my dad saw, and this man was carrying a cross. Uh, He was walking along the, we called it the highway, but it was just a two-lane road. Uh, And he was carrying this cross, and it was big. Uh, And I remember it had little wheels at the bottom, so he wasn't tearing the road up everywhere he went. Um, And he he carried it on his shoulder, and uh, I, I don't know my exact age. I'm guessing I was seven. And this is one of my most clear memories that I still have. It's not perfect, but I do remember it. And my dad saw this man walking along the road. And this man had a story. He was walking from one side of the country to the other. And my dad saw him walking and he stopped and he talked to the man. And he offered to let the man stay at our home along the way. He actually said, uh, you know, it's about 10 miles to our, to our house you can get in the car and I'll drive you there. And the guy said, I can't do that. I have to walk. I have to carry this cross everywhere I go. But he said, I'll be there in a few hours. And so he did. He walked to our house. A few hours later, he showed up and he came to our house and he took a shower and he got cleaned up and my mom cooked for him and he ate with us. And I remember that he looked like a totally different person after his shower and his shave. 
Um, it must have been forever since he'd actually stayed indoors overnight in a house under a roof. He had a tent on his back, so he's carrying a cross and he's carrying this tent. And he explained that he was on, lived on one of the coasts, and I don't remember which one. And his, and his family, uh, he had lost his home. He'd lost his family. He was at the end of his rope, and he didn't know what to do. And in a desperate moment, he made a cross and decided, perhaps too literally, to take up Jesus' command to carry your cross. Uh, he felt like his earthly life was over, and so... You know, a little bit like Forrest Gump, he just kind of started going. You know, he just started going across the country. Uh, he had been walking, sleeping outdoors, depending on others' hospitality when he could find it. And he was halfway through with his journey. If you made it to Kansas, you're doing really well. And everything he owned was on his back. Now, to be honest, I still don't really know what to think of that guy. But I, I do know this. I still remember... Probably 32 years ago, my parents doing this. And it still, it still stuck with me that my father took a chance and showed mercy and hospitality to this man whom he saw as a fellow believer. And I remember my dad having a conversation with my mom and specifically saying, I would have felt guilty if I had passed that man by and not given him a place to stay. So I I believe that my father was doing what Jesus talked about here. He showed mercy to him because of that cross. And he showed mercy to him because he believed this man was a follower of Christ. And in so doing, he was really showing mercy to Jesus when he showed mercy to that man. He showed hospitality. He gave him a bed to sleep in. You know, what goes through your mind? Uh, You think about that situation. Are you thinking, that's crazy. He let a man sleep in his house overnight that he did not know. Um, yes, it was crazy. That doesn't mean it was the wrong thing to do. Um, think, of, think of all the stuff that you start to think in your head, right? All the excuses that you start making. Why this was a bad idea. Why maybe he shouldn't have done it. Uh, why he was putting his family at, at risk. You know, all of the thoughts that go through your head. And know this, they may, those thoughts may be the very temptations that we will always face when an opportunity to show kindness presents itself. The sort of arguments we make with ourselves, the sort of, de- of debates that we make with ourselves to talk ourselves out of doing the sort of things that Jesus is talking about. There will always be something in our hearts that resists showing mercy. It doesn't make sense. This could backfire. What if they're being dishonest, right? We, we should pay attention to our situation. I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise, but our wisdom should not become an excuse to refuse Jesus a stay. When he comes knocking, right? And if wisdom should have input into our decisions, we should also be eager to listen for Jesus. What you did for the least of these, you did for me. Now say what you will. It seems to me Jesus was... With that man in his sorrows, and Jesus was with him in his mercy as well from the hand of another believer. Jesus, Jesus fed that man and clothed that man and gave that man a shave and a shower. We only have his word on this, but, but that should be enough. Jesus is not distant from our sufferings, and he's not distant from the drinks of water and mercy that we give and receive along the way either. We actually should... 
attune ourselves not just to the mercy that we need or want to receive, but we should be looking for the opportunities that we have to show mercy when they present themselves. Um, we should be ready to do costly things that are challenging and hard and that in some, some ways don't make sense. Um, you saw in the announcements today, and Micah highlighted for you, the Easter Sunday, we're going to have two services. Um, did you know that each year, uh, if you look at a chart of our church attendance, I'm glad to say that things have been trending upward, generally, just upward, just nice and steady. But every year when Easter comes, here's what the chart looks like. Do, 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 do. Ha. Do, do, do. <laughs> and then it, it keeps going up. And. We have to do something about that. We want you to be able to invite your neighbors and your friends and your family members and not think, no, I can't do that. There's not really enough room in there if everybody comes. That little battle that you have with yourself about inviting other people. And so that doing two services is a way for everybody to be able to really reach out and invite neighbors and invite their family and invite people that they love and that they care about. Um. Do you believe God is using this church to minister to God's word to God's people? I mean, I don't want you to verbally answer. Someone's going to say no, and then I'll feel really bad. (laughs) But here, though, this is one way that mercy shows up. There aren't enough churches in the Portland area to minister to all the people that need to hear the gospel here. There aren't. There are not enough churches. And what that means is that if we would show mercy to the people of this city, we may need to die a little death, each and every one of us. We may need to die a little death. And I think in this case, do you know what that is? I think it's a willingness. That little death for us is a willingness to to change and maybe even fundamentally change how we eventually do our services so that more people can come. And it will take a willingness to invite people and it'll take a willingness on each and every one of our parts to make room for new people. And I believe this, and I, I think the session believes this, that, you will, that we will eventually have to move to two services if God keeps being faithful and bringing more people. Are you willing to die the death that sees the church you attend change as is needed so that more people can hear the gospel, so that more disciples can be made, so that more families can be blessed. The people of this city need the Lord Jesus, and, and I believe they find him here. Will you sacrifice your vision of the church and be reminded that this is Jesus' church, not your church, not my church, not any human's church. It is Jesus' church. For now, it's just Easter when we're having the two services, but... Two services may be one way. I'm just throwing this out as a way for you to think to yourself. Am I willing to give up what I want so that more people can get what they need? Um, Will you do it? Would you love the people of this city when the time comes? Or would you withhold that cup of water when there is a city of thirsty people out there? Or will you minister to Jesus and for Jesus by making room for people? Is there room for them here? Then we are called to show mercy just as we are promised mercy. Third, Jesus is showing us today that God remembers. Um, You see this in the discussion here about verse 42, 41, 42. He talks about rewards. 
Um, in, in a sense, Jesus is really talking about one reward in three different ways here. It's like he's taking the diamond and he's turning it and he's letting us see what this reward is from different angles. He talks about the reward of a prophet. He talks about the reward of a righteous person. He talks about the reward of the little ones. What's that reward? We'll go back to verse 40 once again. What does it say in verse 40? It tells us what the person receives. It says what the person's reward is. It says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Verse 40 tells us what the reward is. And really the question is who the reward is. The reward is Jesus. The reward is Jesus. You know, we've looked at the, this idea of rewards in the teaching of Jesus before. Um, back when we looked at Matthew chapter 6, Jesus repeatedly, over and over again, dangled the carrot of rewards in front of his people. And at the time, we said a couple of things. For one, we said that Jesus was teaching that it isn't wrong to do things for a reward, as long as it's the right reward. Um, Jesus assumes that it is a that Jesus assumes that it is a good thing to desire to be rewarded for doing what is right. We were designed to pursue rewards, but we also said that God didn't make us to live for worldly rewards in the here and now. In fact, this is one of the beautiful things about uh, the family worship guide. My, my family's been been using it. I would encourage you to, if, especially if the first few weeks they seemed a little little weak and you didn't like them, go back, give it another try. Um, keep trying. Um, but we had a, a conversation last night about rewards, and I, and I asked my kids, why is it that we sort of feel bad about the idea of doing something for Jesus and getting a reward for it? And one of my children said, well, it's because rewards are usually worldly things, and we're not supposed to love the things of this world. And I remember telling him, ha ha, listen to the sermon tomorrow. Um, because we were designed to pursue rewards, but God didn't make us to live for worldly rewards in the here and now. He made us to live for eternal rewards, things that can't be stolen, things that can't uh, fade, things that can't fall apart or be destroyed by thieves or moth or rust. The sort of reward that God gives cannot be held on to. It doesn't go into a bank account. It doesn't sit up on a shelf. It's something better than a thing that we can have in the here and now. Whatever reward it is that we get is something that will fill us with greater joy and happiness and delight than anything on this earth is capable of doing. Because if he gives us anything less, it's going to be a huge disappointment. You're going to say, I lived for an, an iPad? That, that's what I was living for? Um, anything, any kind of earthly reward, some material worldly thing, is going to disappoint. Um, you know, it's not like we get to heaven and we get a heavenly plaque or a heavenly stack of gold or something like that. I think the best way of putting it is that God promises us absolute happiness. And the absolute happiness that he promises us is Christ himself. It's Christ himself. Um, and the person who has let go of the things of this world and who has clung to Jesus has greater happiness than anything in this life. What a disappointment to get something worldly. You know, for a sanctified person, God really is their greatest desire. He's greater than anything else. Anything you get would be a pale imitation. 
And, and think about the person whom God has been working on. He's been working on your heart. He's been helping you to love him. He's been helping you to let go of things. He's been, he's been helping you to be willing to see all these things go. These goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. And you can say that with Luther. And then you get to heaven and you get a heavenly plaque. To have more of God. To be filled with Christ. To be united with the one we love. Is there a greater reward that you can imagine in all of this world? If you become like the psalmist in Psalm 73, listen to this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's a sanctified heart right there. That's, that's the heart of a person who has said, God is the gospel. God is greater God is greater than anything else I could get. And once God has worked it into your heart that that is really true, anything else will be a disappointment. And so I do not think it is a stretch to suggest that our heavenly reward will be Jesus. Amen. Jesus already hinted at this before. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To have him. To have all of him. To be with the one that we love most of all. What a gift. Yeah. If God does give us any kind of reward or recognition or crown, one thing we can be sure of is that it will actually be used by God to increase our joy in Christ. You know, the purpose of the crown is so that it can be cast down at his feet. So that we can say, it's worthless, it's yours, you can have it, anything else. I don't care. You are the God. You are the one where all of the joy is found, right? Um, that crown given to us will be a source of more joy because it's yielded over to the one it really belongs to. Anyway. Jesus here tells us directly what the reward is. If we receive the person, we receive the person as a messenger for. When my dad received Jesus into our house that day, he loved Jesus more he knew Jesus more, and he had a greater release from the things of this world. I really believe that my father experienced more of Christ because he let that man into our house and he took a chance. If we receive what the messenger preaches, right? He talks about the messenger here. If we receive what they preach, what will we receive? We will receive Jesus himself. Christ himself is the reward that they carry and give to us and that we receive because we received one of his messengers to receive Jesus as its own reward. And Jesus is reminding us God never forgets. He always remembers. You know, for one, he never forgets his people. In the book of Genesis, uh, Joseph was in prison and while he helped the butler, right? he, while he was in there, he helped the butler. And if you remember, he told the butler, hey, you're going to get released from prison. And when you do, remember me. Well, the butler didn't remember Joseph. But God never forgot. The butler may have forgotten Joseph, but the Lord never forgets his people. Not only does he never forget his people, but God never forgets those who show mercy to his people. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? You know, I've forgotten so many details of the day that that man came to our house all those years ago. Uh, that man needed some earthly kindness. He needed a bed to sleep in, a shower to warm him, a home-cooked meal. I, I can barely remember all but the broad outlines of that day. I don't remember the conversation. I don't remember 
so much. But do you know what? The Lord remembers every detail of that day. He remembers every thought that went through my father's head, my mother's head, my head. I had thoughts. I don't remember what I thought. I mean, I was seven. They were, probably weren't great thoughts, but I had thoughts too. He knew. He knows everything. He remembers every detail, everything that's been lost by time. He remembers what my father did. We are so finite. We are so fleeting. We're so forgetful. And yet God remembers it all, and he never forgets even the smallest detail. If you've shown mercy to one of God's people, if you've been kind to a suffering saint, please know God has seen. God will see each act of mercy. I do think that on the last day, we will stand before the Lord. We will have held out to us far more opportunities to be faithful and merciful than we actually took up. We'll be thankful for Christ on that day. But we will see our records. We will see what we did. And we will see also, though, all of the acts of mercy we did not take up. And I think we will regret regret the times that we could have shown mercy and instead we held back. We made excuses. We gave our reasons. We had our discernment. We had our wisdom. We had our caution. And we didn't receive the person when we could have. And on that day, we will regret it. Opportunities to show mercy not taken. Those are the moments we will really regret, I think. And then we'll give glory to Jesus. We'll give glory to Jesus because he was more merciful than us. Now, let's not misunderstand that the point of this teaching here is not to get the word out that helping Christians is like rubbing the genie's lamp, right? That's that's not what a Christian is. This is not a passage for the would-be helpers of Christians. This is a passage for suffering Christians who need to know that their God knows them and loves them and provides for them and sees them and remembers them. And he's strengthening us to go out. The point is that the darkness of the world needs to be pierced by true and brilliant gospel light. But Christians need to know that God is with them when they do it. That's the point here. You are not alone. You are not forgotten. You are remembered by your God. You're remembered. You are seen. You're provided for. All of it rests in the Lord, not in you, not in your situation, not in your wisdom, not in your skill, not in your resources. The Lord will not give you a pessimistic leg to stand on. Do you feel that? Yeah, I wonder, especially if you have a negative personality that lets bad news dominate, that lets your pessimistic feelings dominate. As you hear these things this morning, are you letting God push back on you? If you've been tempted by dark feelings and grim fears, you consider yourself a pessimistic Christian. A complaining Christian, a grumbling Christian, a negative Christian. None of those things are admirable. Those words do not belong next to each other. They don't modify each other. They're not meant to be together. In Romans 8, Paul runs through this long line of things that can actually happen and actually do happen to Christians. In the list, he says, tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He even mentions being killed all day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, here's the thing. Surely here, of all the places in Scripture, Paul is going to say, we are pitiable. We're a sorry bunch. 
You should feel sorry for us and we should feel sorry for each other. Let's, let's bewail our situation together. And yet instead, what does Paul say in Romans 8.37? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's not, it is a pep talk, but it's not a pep talk the way we think of pep talks. Because he's, he's saying, these things can happen to you. And we're more than conquerors in them, right? If we're more than conquerors when we get starved or when we suffer or when we go naked or when we get killed, then the Bible is teaching us we should never feel sorry for ourselves. If we can't feel sorry for ourselves when we go naked, there is no situation where we get to feel sorry for ourselves. We're more than conquerors. And yet self-pity can still happen. Self-pity came for Jonah who was sorry for himself and wished that he could die. He said, yes, God, I wish I could die. Self-pity. Self-pity came for Elijah after his victory on Mount Carmel to turn into a huge revival in the land like he expected. Self-pity can come for us too. Woe is us. People misrepresent us in public. Woe is us. We don't have cultural dominance Woe is us, the people who make movies don't ask us what we think first. Woe is us, the world doesn't love us. Woe is us, woe is us. It didn't wear well on the prophets before us. And self-pity doesn't wear well on a Christian either. Self-pity is not becoming on us. Paul says so, Jesus says so. I will tell you something else. This is not a scold for me to you. Uh, I hope you see that. This is me preaching at myself. This is me preaching at my own negativity. This is me trying to fight and root out my own pessimism here as well. And so you see the, the preacher sits under his own preaching. I am guilty of making excuses for inaction. Look at that guy. He'll, he'll never be interested in me if I, have, if I share Christ with him. He's going to laugh at me. I need what Jesus has to say here. I need the slap upside the head that God is giving us. People will receive you. People will believe. Stop saying they won't. The the gospel has been promised to go forth. Stop withholding it because you anticipate negativity. Make room for people to come in. You've got the instrument of mercy handed out. I hope you'll let the Lord correct you today. If you've heard doom and gloom in the last few weeks when Jesus reminded us that we would be persecuted and rejected, I hope you will realize he wasn't teaching us that. That's not what he wants for us. There is great hope. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who ministers and changes hearts. Not you or me. What a relief. God himself is at work in this world. Not you or me. The Lord Jesus Not you or me. Saves sinners all around us. He builds up his church. He does it all the time. Because you see, it's not your church. And it's not my church. It's Jesus' church. Let's pray. Lord, would you make us receptive to correction? Make us receptive to your encouragement. Make us ready to take you at your word. And see that you are at work preparing great blessings for your people. Protect us from darkness and doubt and faithlessness. Instead, correct us with spirit-given faith and trust.
and joy. Oh God, we ask you to give us more of Jesus and help us not to cling to the things of this world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.